facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Well, hello, hello. It's Brooke Taylor in for Kale. Nice to be with you again. Busy show ahead. What a special day. Earlier today, the inaugural solemnity of Our Lady of Champion at the National Shrine of Our Lady of Champion, a day that has been so long in the making with so many souls and prayers and preparation and celebrated, of course, by the most Reverend Bishop David Ricken, the Holy Mass, commentary by our own Drew Mariani. If you missed that, by the way, the live stream can be accessed on our social media platforms. Really beautiful to watch on Facebook today just to see the multitude of prayer intentions streaming like a waterfall being placed on the patent and the chalice in a mystical way. And also this evening, the family rosary across America live from the National Shrine of Our Lady of Champion, led by Father Rocky, of course, keeping the graces going. And this hour, I am pleased to share that we have not one but two very special guests for you on the program today. Lieutenant Colonel Stephen DeLellis will be here. He served as the Deputy Command Surgeon for the United States Army Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Recently retired after 36 years of decorated service in the highest tiers of the military, Rangers, Special Forces, Delta Force, and is perhaps best known for his involvement Battle of Mogadishu, also known as the, the Black Hawk Down incident, and he was there. His helicopter was shot down. He he broke his back. It was October 3rd, 1993. So they just observed the 30-year anniversary. And so we're going to talk to him. We, we didn't hear much about it in the news, maybe a little bit, but it's something we ought not to forget. And with the events currently taking place in the Holy Land, what we've learned unfolding in Israel. We will hear uh, some of the lessons he's learned as a husband, as a father, through his medical background, and, and as a strong man of faith. And what I also think will be interesting, and so if you have a question, would love to take your calls, is he also now, as newly retired, is executive director at the Fort Bragg Research Institute, part of the Geneva Foundation, and has become one of the most well-respected leading researchers when it comes to brain trauma, post-traumatic stress, TBI, traumatic brain injury, as it relates to our warfighters, which really relates to everyone. So you don't want to miss the interview. Again, Colonel DeLellis will be with us in about 20 minutes and up through the rest of the show. And speaking of battles, this past Saturday, of course, we celebrated the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary formerly Our Lady of Victory. And if you had a chance to tune in Friday, we had Father Carney on talking about that. I was filling in for, for Kale, and he mentioned the Battle of Lepanto, recounting that the month of October dedicated to the Most Holy Rosary. And of course, every night here on Relevant Radio, we pray together the Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky. And our guest now is going to bring us into what I think is a bit of a rosary retreat. We could all use that. And he is Father Lawrence Liu with us from England. Father Liu is a Dominican refriar, the promoter general of the rosary of the Order of Preachers and the rector of the Rosary Shrine in London, also a well-known photographer. So really beautiful blend of bringing those together for his latest book. It's called Mysteries Made Visible, Praying the Rosary with Sacred Art and cannot wait to open the pages and explore that with you. Pleased to have him with us now. Hello, welcome to the show, Father Liu. Hello, lovely to be on with you. 
Thank you for being here. I'm so happy for this book, the beauty of it, the subject matter, and it's a little bit different than what we might think. And so maybe you could just say a few words about the book and and why, Father Lou, you focused on the rosary. Yes, well, um, you were right to mention Lepanto, of course, and uh, 1571 was the year that the Battle of Lepanto was won through the prayers of Our Lady, through the prayers of the rosary. And of course, uh, it was the Dominican Pope, St. Pius V, who had really gathered the Christendom, gathered the Rosary Confraternity, especially based in Rome, to pray the Rosary. And I'm a Dominican myself, and uh, as you mentioned, I'm the promoted general of the Holy Rosary for the Dominican Order. And so um, um, it is my special privilege and, and task to promote the Rosary and encourage people to pray the Rosary and to see uh, the power of the Rosary in their lives. You know, Our Lady really answers prayers through the Rosary, as we saw so powerfully at Lepanto. And I think our current situation in the world just reminds me over and over again that we need to turn to the Rosary and remember that our Blessed Mother, when she came to Fatima in 1917, asked us to pray the Rosary every day for peace. And so we really need to turn to the Our Lady with the Rosary and pray for peace. Um, the book was written then uh, to mark the 450th anniversary of Lepanto. Um, rather unusually, it was published first in the UK uh, by the Catholic Truth Society, which is one of the oldest Catholic publishing houses in the world. And they published mm-hmm. it in 2021 to mark the 450th anniversary of Lepanto and also 800 years of Dominican life in England. So that's why it was published then, and uh, with my special uh, rosary promoter hat on, and also at that time being rector of the Rosary Shrine here in London, uh, they, the CTS, my publishers, asked me to write this book. Um, and because they knew I was uh, a keen photographer, they said, you know, can you illustrate the mysteries of the rosary with your photographs? And that's what I did. Uh, it was recently then uh, rep- republished in the, U- in the USA by Ignatius Press. I'm so grateful. Yes, Ignatius. And, and it's, I'm so, we're also glad for your gift of photography in the way that you transmit beauty through your eye, through your heart and your formation, your understanding of theology. And in a time where our eye gate is taking in so much darkness and tragedy, it's such a beautiful thing. We know that beauty has an evangelizing quality. There's a sacramentality of beauty and one of the, the, the Christian transcendentals of truth, beauty and goodness. And maybe, you know, in your work, you develop the theology of the importance of visible incarnational aspects of our Christian faith. And then, you know, it's noteworthy because when you think of prayer, we might think of it as something invisible or or strictly spiritual, but you help us understand that paradox. And maybe you can explain that a little bit more for us. Yes. Um, Well, at the heart of the rosary, and really at the heart of our Dominican spirituality of prayer, is the incarnation of Christ. You know, God who is invisible, who cannot be seen and who is uh, beyond creation, actually deigns to enter creation. And he becomes flesh in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. He becomes visible, as St. John says in the first letter of St. John, you know, that we have seen him, we have touched him, and we can actually uh, engage with him. Christ became man so that he could communicate God's love to us in the way that we human beings know best, which is in, uh, you know, which is in tangible ways. And he continues to communicate God's love and mercy to us through the sacraments, which are visible, tangible signs. We need to experience the love of God. And so Mysteries Made Visible, the book, 
is about how God became man so as to communicate his love to us in the flesh. And in particular, I talk about how the mysteries of light, the luminous mysteries of Pope St. John Paul II, can be understood sacramentally and easily. That means we have to be placed within uh, the visible reality of the Church, which is Christ's mystical body on earth, and also we have to, uh, in person, receive the sacraments, not just virtually, but you know, physically, together with other people. We receive the sacraments because that is communicating with Christ and receiving His grace. So this uh, bodily nature of, of the sacraments, this bodily nature of our Christian religion, of Catholicism, is essential. And, and it's not just spiritual things, but things which are made uh, enfleshed, which are made visible in our lives. After all, uh, our system is the religion of the incarnation, of God becoming man, becoming visible. And so that's why I don't think that prayer is just about something that's spiritual. Uh, it is really getting to God, to the spiritual, through the bodily. And that's what's so beautiful about Catholicism. It is. Father Lawrence Liu is with us, the Promoter General of the Rosary of the Order of Preachers, and joining us from London to talk about his book, Mysteries Made Visible, Praying the Rosary with Sacred Art. And in the introduction, Father, you narrate some of the history of Marian devotion, of the rosary in the church, and of course, you are a priest with the Dominican Order. So can you say a bit about how the book relates to to your vocation as a follower of St. Dominic, the, the great patrimony of Dominicans who've encouraged the faithful. You mentioned Our Lady of Fatima and through the centuries to turn mm-hmm. to the rosary. Yes, well, I must confess that um, when I entered the order in 2005, um, I didn't realize the connections of the Dominican order to Our Lady, to the rosary. Um, I was just drawn to the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas and to apologetics and to preaching the truth. Um, and helping to explain the riches of Catholic truth. And it was only later that um, the rosary uh, became a part of my daily life. And much, much later, I have to say, I struggled with the rosary because I'm a convert from um, from Protestantism. And so uh, Marian devotion was, was also something that I had to uh, get used to. And Our Lady had to reveal herself to me very gently over the years. And likewise, devotion to the rosary, that only came much later. Um, however, the rosary is therefore very important to us Dominicans because we believe that Our Lady gave the rosary to St. Dominic. And I wrote this book because I found that, you know, during my prayer, I could become very distracted when praying the rosary or I just found it difficult. And so there are tips that I give at the beginning of the book on how to uh, pray better, especially when we're distracted. And in particular, I pointed out that um, focusing on a piece of sacred art, um, or if we have a church where there's sculpture, like I do here in the Rosary Shrine, there's sculpture uh, depicting each of the mysteries of the Rosary. Well, we can walk around the art and sort of interact with it, interact with the figures in it, um, and look at the faces and so on. And that certainly helps me to focus and refocus on the rosary when I'm distracted. And so this book really is written to share how I pray and how I use art to pray. And each of the reflections, the short reflections that accompany each of the photographs, they suggest how we can use that art to think theologically about that particular mystery that we're praying and meditating upon. Because as we know, 
we need to meditate on the mysteries of the rosary, not just say the rosary, but meditate. That means to really concentrate and reflect and have mental prayer. Because if we don't do that, then it is like a corpse, right? It's the prayer without the soul. So meditation is the soul of the rosary, as many popes and saints have said. And the Dominican order uh, insists then that we must meditate on the mysteries of the rosary. You know, as you're sharing that, it's really neat. I was thinking, too, with regards to Friday, Father Carney talking about the Battle of Lepanto, and he was saying, we were talking about that challenge, as you just mentioned, of drifting off distraction in prayer, especially if you pray it every day. Praying it every day, sometimes you're tired or it's easy to get in habits where your your mind does wander and you don't even realize it. And a friend of mine, she said, "I when I do that, I will pray the whole decade over again if I find myself doing that. And mm, I think here... On Relevant Radio, it's nice because we pray together, and so you're listening in real time to prayer intentions coming in, and it's it's truly a, a beautiful community, a family of prayer like that. But he also talked about the noonday devil and, and trying to combat that temptation, but by faithfulness and fidelity to continue, we show our love of the Lord, even when you know we're tired or distracted. But for you, having that experience, is there an example of one piece of art or meditation that really just lights that fuse that you might be able to share with us? Well, um, uh, here in the Rosary Shrine in London, uh, we are very blessed. Uh, 140 years ago, the people who built this church um, created a unique building, one altar with sculpted altar pieces for every single mystery of the Rosary. And so that's, you know, 15 altars in total. Um, And I love praying in front of these statues. I love walking from one chapel to the next, praying the statues, and that really helps me. But of all the statues we have here of the Rosary, um, the one that stands out isn't one of the older ones, but probably the newest one that I commissioned uh, a number of years ago, and that's Our Lady of Cana, and that's in the Luminous Mysteries Garden that's behind the church. And I love sitting there in the morning and looking at Our Lady, and she's positioned in such a way that I can hold her hand if I need to and just pray with her and remember her words to me, you know, do whatever He tells you. Because, yes, prayer is about that fidelity to Christ, trust in Christ, and just like a child going to Him and saying the prayers of the Rosary. You know, Sister Lucia at Fatima, she said that, you know, the reason that Our Lady chose the Rosary, she could have chosen any other prayer, but she chose the Rosary because it was simple enough for a child to say, but it was theologically rich enough for adults and theologians to ponder. And I think that's a beautiful uh, image of the rosary, a beautiful reminder to us of the richness of the rosary. So yes, we can be distracted. Yes, our minds can wander. But we should think of the rosary as holding on to the hand of our Blessed Mother and just uh, obeying her. I pray the rosary every day now because Our Lady asks us to. And I, I know she's my mother, I trust her, and I know she, she knows best what is good for my soul, for the salvation of the world. And she has said that the rosary is her blueprint for peace in this world. Her, it is her tool for the conversion of sinners. It has ever been thus since she, the time she gave it to St. Dominic. And so um, trusting in Mary, that's why I pray the rosary. And so that means, yes, if I'm tired or if I don't feel like it, I will still do it because I love Mary, I love my mother, and I want to do what she tells me. Well, now However, given, okay. I, 
was just going to say you've given us a tableau to, I mean, just imagining you and having heard a little bit of your story that you're a convert from Protestantism and the way that the Blessed Virgin Mary brought you as a child and in her mantle and just to imagine you now i'm when i pray the the mystery of the wedding at cana i'm going to be thinking of you holding her hand in that altarpiece that's so beautiful father and um I, and i want to i do want to touch on that as well because there are still many that do struggle with surmounting the fear of loving Mary in a way that is um, idolatry, which we know isn't true. And we always say all the time, we do not worship Mm. Mary. We venerate her. We give her honor that is due that our Lord gave her. But for those who still struggle with that, what would you say would be um, an entry point to consider? Well, uh, well, St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, the great Dominican scholastic teacher, St. Thomas, put it really well. And he said that, you know, spiritual goods are not like material goods. So material goods, we have limited resources of. If I cut the cake into half and I take half the cake, there's only half the cake left, right? But with spiritual goods, such as love, because it's spiritual, it is not diminished when it is divided. There's a beautiful image that we have of this at the Easter Vigil, when that flame, that one flame from the Paschal candle is spread throughout the entire church, it grows, it doesn't diminish. You know, so spiritual goods are like that. And so it's, it's, um, it's a categorical error, I think, to say that oh, loving Mary is somehow in competition with loving uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, our universal Savior. No, it can't be, because love is not divisible like that either. Rather, love is increased. And what Mary does is Mary, the mother of God, teaches us to love her son. Mary teaches us and shows us how to love Jesus better, how to love God better. And we love God better by precisely doing whatever he tells us. And those are the words of Mary, you know, saying to God, fiat mihi, let it be done to me according to your word. That's how Mary shows her love, through her perfect obedience, her docility to the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what we need these days. You know, when we pray, we need to learn to listen and to listen to God and to be open-hearted to doing whatever he tells us. Amen. Thank you, Father. And I guess in conclusion, with the world events, and you did touch on that, the the unrest that's going on now in the Holy Land, and feeling often very helpless in the midst of, of great struggle and loss and tragedy, how can we find peace in the rosary in a way that will be lasting and performative? Well, the rosary um, is best summed up, I think, in Mary's words um, to the children of Fatima in 1917. She very courteously asked them, will you pray the rosary, that means five decades, every day for peace and for an end to the war? And I believe that Our Lady's request is for peace firstly in our hearts and then for an end to that fundamental war, which is the rebellion of sin against God and his goodness. And it is only through a constant meditation on what Jesus has done for us, how much he loves us, and how he wants to give us the glory of heaven with and through the intercession of Mary. It is only in this way, by constantly meditating on God's love, that we can find peace. Otherwise, we think that we can find it in the powers and struggles of the world, 
or we look outside of God, we look to the world for um, hope and for um, what we need. But what we really want, what the heart really longs for, is Jesus Christ. So the rosary focuses on that, and he is our peace. Only in him will we find peace. Amen. And I think, too, studies bear out, you know, when you pray the rosary between the heartbeat and the breaths and how our fingers move along the beads and the cadence of the prayers, it does have a physical effect, a physiological effect, and in just how it is truly a miraculous devotion and one that is able to dispense peace in a time that we greatly need it. Thank you so much, Father Lou, for your book. Would you give us a blessing before you leave? I would love to. Thank you. And the Lord be with you. And may Almighty God come down upon you and all the listeners, and may God surround you with his mantle of protection, and may he fill your heart with the peace that the world cannot give. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father Lawrence Liu, thank you, Promoter General of the Rosary of the Order of Preachers and the Rector of the Rosary Shrine in London. Again, the name of the book is Mysteries Made Visible, Praying the Rosary with Sacred Art, published by Ignatius Press here in the United States, available now. God bless you. Thank you so much, Father. Thank you. God bless. Quick break. When we come back, Lieutenant Colonel Stephen DeLellis is here, recently retired after 36 years of decorated service in the highest tiers of the military forces, including Delta Force, currently executive director at the Fort Bragg Research Institute, as advances in our understanding of neuroscience when it comes to brain trauma, as it relates to everyone, warfighters and beyond. Much to pack in in the time that we have back. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back here on the Clear. Kale Clark show. It's broke in for Kale here on Relevant Radio and the app. Stay with us. This is the Kale Clark show giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. This coming July, the entire Relevant Radio Network will be live in Indianapolis at the National Eucharistic Congress. We are pleased to be able to offer you family-friendly travel experience for you to join us. Thanks to our friends at Nativity Pilgrimage. You can find out more about travel packages today at relevantradio.com slash encounter. That's relevantradio.com dot com slash encounter. Welcome back to the program. It is Brooke Taylor in for Kale. So programming 101 when you're doing live radio is you kind of keep things moving. If there's an interview, generally you make a quick introduction, you jump into the meat of the conversation, but sometimes there are exceptions. And in this case, the introduction I think is part of the conversation. And I do think it merits a moment to really just underscore the service of my guest that you're about to meet. For 36 years, Lieutenant Colonel Stephen DeLellis served in the highest tiers of the military forces and has been involved in many combat missions around the world. The most recognizable, perhaps you might be familiar with, is the Battle of Mogadishu, an event later recounted in the book and then the movie Black Hawk Down. 36 years in the Army, 31 at Fort Bragg, and 16 combat deployments in six conflicts. 
20 years in Delta Force and also a uh, in 2019 awarded the Heroes of Military Medicine Army Hero Award and currently serves as executive director at the Fort Bragg Research Institute, which is a program of the Geneva Foundation. And his medical career has been dedicated to understanding the effects of TBI. That's traumatic brain injury for service members, veterans, and has helped develop one of the most comprehensive neuro cognitive baseline and post-injury assessment programs in the DOD, the Department of Defense. So if you have a question for Steve, would love to take your call. Patrick Alog is on the phones today. Our studio lines are open, one 914 Joining us now is Lieutenant Colonel Stephen DeLellis. Thank you, Steve, so much for taking the time to be here, sir. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to to talk to you. I feel like this has been a few years in the making. And again, I want to throw our phone lines out in case anyone has a call for you, Colonel, a question, a comment, one 914 And less than a week ago, we observed the 30th anniversary of Operation Gothic Serpent, which most people would know as the Battle of Mogadishu, the subsequent book, the movie Black Hawk Down. And at that time, no battle since the Vietnam War killed so many U.S. troops, 18 American soldiers, 73 wounded. And you were there. You were a big part of that. You are a healer. And we'll get to that as far as what you're doing today and so much of your life dedicated to healing. But three decades on, um, you've seen a lot. And given what's going on in the world, just wondering if you might be able to share some reflections of that event. Sure. Yeah, well, it was, um, uh, you know, uh, bittersweet, of course, uh, getting together uh, on 3 and 4 October with uh, with the remains of uh, Task Force Ranger and and uh, those who were able to travel and come to North Carolina and spend a couple days with us uh, and, and just kind of uh, relive the, the story. Uh, we had an opportunity to to bring the entire uh, special operations part of the task force together to um, uh, discuss actions on the objective and and just just really solidify what went right and what went wrong. Um, as you know, that battle uh, was really a significant turning point for the American special operations community. Uh, so many lessons learned. Um, uh, so many successes um, combined with so many failures. Uh, and while we did suffer uh, a huge number of casualties for such a small task force, I think what we really gained out of that um, scenario was, was an immense font of lessons learned that really shaped the future of special operations uh, um, uh, operations, but also special operations medicine uh, yeah. for future conflicts. You've, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the movie. I remember when, when my own husband was at Fort Bragg and there was a screening with the Ridley Scott film. It was debuting there. And, you know, here, this is part of your story, which is terrible with with the PTSD, but also heroic, the valor, the perseverance. Is it pretty accurate to the actual events, the Mogadishu Mile, the things that happened? Or, of course, Hollywood's going to do their thing, but is it pretty close to the true events? 
Yeah, you know, the movie, uh, so we had the opportunity to meet uh, Jerry Bruckheimer and Ridley Scott and the actors that portrayed our warfighters uh, in that movie. They came to Fayetteville two weeks before the, the movie was uh, released to the public. Um, they rented a theater here in Fayetteville, and the North Carolina portion of the task force was able to get together and uh, and view that movie together. Um, and and I don't know that we we as much watched a movie as we did kind of critique the storyline. Um, but it was it was uh, again bittersweet. But it was fun to be together and kind of see what what Hollywood is portraying about uh, the storyline and and the purpose, the reason we were in Somalia. And and I think a, a couple things really stood out. That was the only time I watched the movie. I my kids have watched the movie several times since then, um, and we talk about it frequently. But well, not frequently, but occasionally. Um, but the the reason for being there, I think, was the most important, um, at, and most importantly, accurately portrayed portion of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, there was horrible, horrible. Um, uh, genocide going on in Somalia at the time. Uh, Somalia was ruled by warlords, uh, and two uh, two warlords rose to prominence. And Mohammed Farah Idid really controlled a significant portion of Mogadishu that included the port where food and supplies, relief supplies, were flowing in from the rest of the world. The rest of the world was really compassionate toward. Somalia and food and medicines and and caretakers and providers were really flowing in through the port, the airport. And Mohammed Farah Idid, Mr. Idid, um, um, commanded a fairly large militia that 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 really owned that portion of of Mogadishu. Uh, And and they were they were uh, stealing food, essentially, and and supplies um, to recruit more warfighters so that they could really build the most powerful uh, force uh, in the country. And that was really Mr. Idid's plan was to uh, was to own the, the shipments uh, and to be able to pay his warfighters, his warriors, uh, with food and medicines that were meant for the starving community. And I think those points are really important. I'm glad that that aspect of the story was communicated as it should be. Your daughter, Olivia, wrote a very moving tribute recounting the events of that operation and just with the 30-year anniversary sharing that. I just want to read a brief excerpt. She says, I thank God for his protection over these men. When my dad's bird crashed, it broke his back and left him severely wounded in unimaginable ways. To those who lost their loved ones, let today be a celebration of their lives and all they did. May their memory be forever eternal. Now, again, Again, as Olivia mentioned, you broke your back. It was 16, 18-hour fight, and then which you had to run for your lives to the Mogadishu Stadium there. I know your dad came from Italy, Roman Catholic. Good, You know, you have, you are a man of faith, and, and I want to get later into the conversation a little bit about the the, the post-traumatic stress, and, and because it is such a huge aspect in our era, not only for our veterans and our service members, but I think our general population and even what we're seeing now in Israel. But what should people know and remember about those events most specifically? Yeah, I, you know, I did spend um, 
several decades in uniform, and I cannot imagine uh, having done that without the grounding of my faith. Um, I, I really believe that a lot of our nation's problems and a lot of our military pro- military's problems uh, as it pertains to post-traumatic stress and the suicide suicidal nature of of the finality of problems that we experience in the military is based on the lack of a grounding or a foundation that gives you something to hold on to, whether whether things are going right or wrong for you. And, uh, you know, I, I recounted to my wife um, uh, several years after the Battle of Mogadishu uh, and after other conflicts. I mean, Mogadishu was a conflict in which I was involved, but it certainly wasn't the last. It wasn't the first, and it certainly wasn't the last. I mean, I, I participated in six conflicts, and, and Mogadishu was somewhere right around the middle. But uh, um, I, I don't understand how service members uh, can 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 survive that the, the stress of battle um, without some grounding in faith, some some understanding of a higher be, being or or um, a, a reason for our existence that put us where we are today. Uh, we are here to do the will of God and our Savior, uh, and um, and I believe that that the path I was given to take through the military was, was an allocation of my capabilities. What, what God had, had permitted me to be able to do to, to serve alongside of my warfighting brethren, but then later in my career to take care of those, those same warriors that I went to war with previously. And I really believe that that it's that lack of faith, that lack of a grounding, that lack of a, a belief in a higher being um, that keeps us rooted in a foundation that helps and protects us when things just aren't going right in our, our lives. And thank you. And Colonel Delellis, you know, you as you mentioned, you now dedicated your career to to healing fellow soldiers, veterans, studying research. And we see that, you know, the world is witnessing right now another violent tragedy unfolding in Israel. Uh, there's an article in Harvard Magazine a few years back called The Era and the Age of Trauma, in which they looked at reasons why more people are experiencing post-traumatic stress. And of course, we had COVID, and this is something that they assert one-third of the U.S. population has experienced some sort of traumatic stress. And, you know, you're I know you're experiencing it from a personal standpoint, but also a scientific standpoint. You've studied extensively, published dozens of scholarly articles on neurotrauma. So maybe uh, I know we have to take a break in a few minutes, but before we get into the break, touch on PTS for us. Um, I know that in the veteran community, the D has been dropped. I don't know if that's officially been adopted everywhere, post-traumatic stress as opposed to a disorder. Your thoughts on that and maybe some of the top takeaways from what you've learned in the years that you've studied it. Well, I hate the fact that the D has been dropped because post-traumatic stress exists everywhere. Whether you're in a car accident or you experience uh, uh, family problems, uh, you, you experience abuse, uh, at the, at the hands of someone else, or you were in war and you, you, you witnessed horrible atrocities. Um, post-traumatic stress happens. Uh, you undergo some trauma and there's stress, uh, and, and there's a healing process that goes along with that stress. And if, 
if if you're if you're uh, in tune and you're enabled and you're provided for the resources that help you deal with whatever it is you just went through, the challenge that you just experienced, um, there's a healing process and that post-traumatic stress um, becomes less of a burden and, and it doesn't become any less ugly, but eventually you heal, you learn to heal, you learn to, to get past it. And I think with faith, you learn to forgive. Um, you never forget, but you learn to forgive. And unfortunately, when that, when that, that trauma is reinforced over and over and over in the case of multiple atrocities, uh, and you're not able to heal from one or the next or the subsequent, uh, it does become a disorder. And that's, that's when I think our resources are required, the, the, the mental health resources are required of the medical community to step in and say, enough is enough. You need to back off. We need to pull you off the line, wherever that line is, whether you're a police officer, a firefighter, mm-hmm. or, or a soldier, um, or a warfighter. You need, you, you're, you're, the medical community needs to step in and help protect you. Boy, well said. And as much as we continue to learn, it, the brain is still so mysterious. And, and I think, too, with the Catholic understanding of suffering, when we bring our spiritual wounds into the light of Christ, it changes the way we perceive our bodily ailments, knowing that when we suffer, Christ is w- with us in a profound way. And it's it's this transfiguration that... Um, you know, being acquainted too, I think, with the saints of the darkness, for example, St. Teresa of Calcutta, John of the Cross, St. Louis Martin. And there's such a great study in the, the hagiography of the saints in fortitude. And I know Tolkien, we, we talk about that a lot too. Tolkien, as a veteran of World War One, and lost so many of his schoolmates and friends. And of course, we know the Great War was, was one of the worst. And yet he, through that, creates this character in The Hobbit of a hero. And it's a different kind of hero. Before that, it was the chivalrous knights that would make one great stand. The Hobbit isn't necessarily someone that you would see and think immediately a hero, but he had the virtue of fortitude, of perseverance, of courage. This tiny hobbit who never lost, uh, left the Shire in order to be, you know, a, a burglar, they say in the book, but to be able to go through and to endure. And I think that is a lesson that he knew then that we can apply today, that it isn't always necessarily about your grand moment, although there is something to be said for that, these acts of valor that we all must make in our life, but it's the everyday, the perseverance, the fortitude, and the endurance. Yeah, you know, I've had friends that have lost eyes. I have friends that have lost arms. I've had friends that have lost legs uh, and continued to serve. Um, you know, the special operations community in the U- United States is is one of the few communities, military communities around the world that, that embraces the sacrifice of, of their wounded warriors and recognizes the capability of those that are still capable of serving. Um, I've had good friends that remained on active duty despite um, missing limbs or, or eyes um, and and have done very well for themselves. They they continued to, to gain rank and they continued to command and they comp- continued to serve and go to war um, uh, to the point where, um, you know, when when they got wounded again on the battlefield, 
having to take those casualties to a combat support hospital and to explain to, uh, you know, a conventional army emergency medical physician that I'm bringing in a casualty with an insulin pump or missing a leg or a, a below the knee amputation with a with a prosthetic. You know, you, the, the German shepherd ears really go up in, in those positions. They're like, what are you talking about? How can you be bringing in, a, 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 you know, an active duty um, patient like that? Um, and then when you explain to them that's not their wounds, that's not why I'm bringing them in, uh, they, they get really curious. But, uh, you, you know, um, there, there are those um, that serve uh, unconditionally. And not one of them would call themselves a hero. Not one of them would agree with you that they what they did was was above and beyond what they were expected to do. Um, it's it's that it's their nature. It's um, it's again that that um, understanding that I'm put here to serve. That my role has been defined, and that what um, I have been asked to do, I'm capable of doing. Therefore, I'm going to do it. Um, and and it's with reluctance sometimes, uh, and I think my wife and my kids will certainly tell you this, um, I, I never anticipated um, ending my career when I did at 30, nearly 37 years in uniform. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, reality struck in and it was literally getting harder to bend down and lace my boots every day. Um, but I refused to let that slow me down. And and I, you know, but I found another way to serve. I found another way to stay connected to the to the community and continue to serve those who suffer. Um, and I think that's important. And I think that's important for those who are who are injured in a much more physically obvious way that are missing limbs that um, they want to um, let America know that they are still here for you. Uh, I want to um, I want to break in there. I think that's a great sentence to underscore. They are in 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 its mutual. Uh, Colonel Delellis with us. Steve Delellis recently retired after 36 years of decorated service. Rangers, Special Forces, Delta Force. Now the executive director at the Fort Bragg Research Institute, advancing our understanding of brain trauma. We're talking about that. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about how it relates to what's going on in the Middle East and more. One triple eight nine one four nine one four nine is the number to call. It's Brooke Taylor in for Kale. Here on Relevant Radio, we'll be right back. Explaining the faith so you can explain it to others. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Today, we pray the family rosary across America with Father Rocky and Drew for the solemnity of Our Lady of Champion from the National Shrine. And the third joyful mystery is, of course, the nativity of our Lord. Do you have a nativity set that you place outside of your home during Advent and the Christmas season? Well, thanks to a generous donor, we are giving away over 200 beautiful hand-painted nativity sets valued at over $500 each. Quality, beauty will bless you and also your entire neighborhood for years to come. So to sign up and win a set, go to relevantradio.com slash set. Sign up before midnight central time, October 15th. That's relevantradio.com 
slash set. And we are back again with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve DeLellis, recently retired after 36 years of decorated service in the Rangers, Special Forces, Delta Force. It's really been powerful to hear not only the personal witness of perseverance and faith, but also the scientific angle as we're talking now about his dedication to serving those in the military, veterans, and his role as executive director at the Fort Bragg Research Institute, a program of the Geneva Foundation. Phone lines are open. Steve, we do have Julie. She's calling from Clovis, New Mexico. I uh, want to grab her before we jump back into questions. And her dad uh, served, I believe, was a ranger and happy to connect with you now. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you doing today? Sure. Good. How are you? Well, you had a question hi. for Steve? Yeah, I just wanted really to make a com- uh, commendable comment. My dad was you know, so calm and psyops at Fort Bragg. I was raised during the Vietnam War. He came back with uh, PTSD. I mean, he was terrorized for a whole year, didn't talk. But he ended up retiring at McDill, going so calm. Well, he was so calm as well. And um, he did a lot of good work, and he overcame everything with his faith in the Lord. He became a deacon in the church. And all those terrible things from PTSD, and he helped quite a number of people after that. So, wow. I just want to say that comment is wonderful. And he was bringing her um, uh, retired pointer and uh, a committee for talking on the show today. Thank you. I, uh, I I wasn't able to catch everything you just said at the end there, Julie, but I we heard about your dad. That's amazing. First of all, thank you for his service. Your thoughts on that, Steve? Wow. Yeah, that's phenomenal. You know, we uh, there there are generations, literally generations of American warfighters that we've overlooked before really recognizing um, post-traumatic stress and the effect on our military. And uh, I think, you know, the, the, the veterans that came back from World War One and World War Two were embraced by America as true heroes, you know, helping uh, stabilize the world and, and really um, reinforce the values of democracy and freedom. And I just don't think that our Vietnam veterans really, well, I don't, I, I, I take that back. It has nothing to do with me thinking it's a fact. Our it Vietnam is. veterans really received none of that same support that, uh, that those veterans prior to Vietnam or since Vietnam really received. So, uh, you know, Vietnam veterans are the reason or uh, those who served in Vietnam are the reason I joined the military. I joined the military in 1983. Uh, all of my drill sergeants were Vietnam veterans. Most of the, the senior officers and non-commissioned officers in the military uh, at the time were Vietnam veterans. Um, and uh, uh, I just remember as a kid watching, uh, you know, black and white television and those those images of soldiers doing what they did best in Vietnam. And I was really really enthralled by um uh, learning about the special operations forces and um and and what they did in vietnam rangers and, and special forces in vietnam and i remember before joining the military thinking you know that's exactly what i wanted to do um and did it uh for 31 of my 36 plus years um and uh and and i really really uh cherish uh, the time I've had with the Vietnam veterans with whom I've served, the leaders that that helped to mold me and uh, and my my warfighting brethren and and make us the uh, the capable the capable soldiers that we were. So thank please thank your father 
uh, for me. Julie, yes, thank you. Well said, Steve. We just have about three minutes left, and I know that you're very good down to the second because that's been your job with time and having to be uh, pretty perfect and spot on. Me, not so much, so I'm just going to fire away and and see if we can get our question and your answer in the time that we have left. One of the things I've heard you talk about is not to be afraid of the dark, and there are so many things that are out of our hands, and it can be scary. And of course, in the spiritual life, it's a wonderful opportunity. This is where faith becomes action. But with everything that's going Going on, what we're seeing in Israel, even at our southern border, uh, if, if people are worried, it's easy to lay up at night and, and almost panic. Anything that you might be able to offer, I've heard you say situational awareness, basic, learn basic things of how to take care of ourselves again, read a map, know how a compass works, things like that. Obviously, our prayer life is huge. So for the time that we have left, maybe some things, practical takeaways that you would suggest, skills that you've learned to help us not be so afraid of, of what's going on in the world and out of our hands. Yeah, I think I'd start by saying St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle, be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. You know, it's really easy to stop just after the first sentence. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle, because I've said that so many times going into battle and in battle. St. Michael, the archangel, um, who really is my hero um, between St. Michael and St. Gabriel, um, um, true heroes of the world and of the faith. Um, But you got to go beyond that, right? It's it's um, protect us uh, against the wickedness and snares of the devil. And, and sometimes we're victims of our own circumstance. I think America has become very complacent, uh, and it's unfortunate. For decades, for generations, for our parents' generations and our grandparents' generations, we understood that being in America, being the nation of, of, uh, of the melting pot of the world, allowing others to come in and live lawfully by assimilating within the American community was was something we all enjoyed and could appreciate. But I think we've become very complacent about uh, what's going on around us. And, uh, you know, there are too many people walking, walking through life with their face glued to a cell phone uh, or to a television and not really paying attention to what's going on around them. It's a shame when, you know, we have to have um, public service announcements to say things like, if you see something, say something. Yeah. That shouldn't have to be told to us. That should just be a fact, right? We are, uh, we are a nation of laws. We should abide by laws. That means we need lawmakers and law keepers, and we should support them. Fortunately, I think we've moved a little bit away from that. I agree. We, we have to leave it there. So much to cover, and I feel like we just started. But thank you. God bless you, Colonel DeLellis. Thank you for joining us on the program. Your service, the value of all you've contributed is incalculable. This side of heaven, we thank your family, Denise, your son, Zach, your daughter, Olivia. God bless you. It's Brooke Taylor in for Kale. Trending with Timory is next, followed by the Rosary. Our Lady of Champion, pray for us. God bless you.